If you've got your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Is where we're going to be as we continue our series, A Better Story. We've been talking about this concept of what story are you living in? Your own story, a cultural story, or the story of God. And if we're living in to the story of God, how does it affect our life? How does it affect how we live, where we go, our resources, our time, our hope? This morning, I want to touch on this concept of stewardship. Stewardship. Uh, Imagine that you're walking with Jesus during his lifetime, during this time of ministry, and almost 25% of everything that comes out of the mouth of Jesus is about this concept of possessions or stewardship. How many know that's a lot? When Jesus is talking about something 25% of the time, it's significant. Of the 40 parables that Jesus teaches, at least 15, some scholars would say even more than that, are directly talking about this concept of stewardship and possessions. Over 2,000 scriptures in the Bible specifically about this topic. Why does money get so much attention? I think you already know. There's this undeniable connection between money and our hearts, right? It's undeniable, the connection between the two. Uh, In our house at home, on the north side of our property, uh, we share like this metal graded fence with our our neighbors to the north. They're great. They're in their early 90s, right? They've been married like 60 something years and it's really great. And he's a really nice guy, but he's really particular about property lines. And so we have this fence there because making sure our property lines are are, are good. And uh, on his side of the property line, there's these vines that grow, right? on this metal graded fence. And I know it's not daily that I rip these vines off the fence, but it feels like it. If anybody's ever been there, like every time, you guys remember when it used to rain? Like back in the day? And so like every time it would rain, I'd be like, oh, I gotta do that again. Like just rip, and they're all intertwined into this metal fence. And I, I, I just, that's the picture that I get of what money does to our heart. And the minute that you rip all the vines away, guess what? It grows back. Because the world around you is consumed with this, I've got to get more. It's consumed with this concept that more is always better. And, and I think money does it. It's like this, this growing vine that just kind of wraps itself around us and our heart. And then all of a sudden we begin to, our, our, our desires are reordered towards the things of the world and not the ways of God. I, I've used this list before, but there's this constant temptation to trust and find life in the things of this world and possessions. This list is gonna be on the screen. It says this, it says money can buy a house, but not a home. Money can buy a bed, but not sleep. Money can buy a clock, but not time. Money can buy you a book, but not knowledge. Money can buy you medicine, but not health. Money can buy you sex, but not love. Money can buy you a vacation, but not rest. See, money gives us this illusion that more is always better. And if I just had a little bit more of that, then all my problems would be solved. But how many know that's an illusion, isn't it? It's a mirage. Because so many things that we inwardly desire don't just, they don't, they don't stop when you get enough money. In fact, sometimes that just complicates things. We spend a lot of time here at City Church talking about spiritual practices, rhythms, spiritual disciplines. If you do not develop practices and rhythms in your life, you have no chance of living a life of freedom. You don't because these are the practices that allow the work of the Holy Spirit to continually renew your mind, renew your heart. In regards to finances, anything else, if you don't have practices, you won't just bend towards generosity, right? Does anybody bend towards generosity naturally? That's great. You're amazing. Tell us, tell us your secret. 
Because the sinful nature in me bends towards selfishness. It bends towards what I want. And it's the weekly practices. It's why ending our time of, of worship every week, we continue our worship and we do the giving liturgy. Heavenly Father, right? We say these week after week. I, I give my resource to you. And we, what does the repetition do? The repetition is actually changing us. Did you know that? There's a power in liturgy. For years, the church lost the power of liturgy. We're like, that's an old, that's a traditional thing, that's a Catholic thing, that's the thing they used to do back in the day. We need liturgies in our life that every week just recenter us. And some week, I totally get it. You're just like, I said this last week, I'm not really listening to it. Some weeks you're like into it, right? You're like, it's really changing me. Some weeks, you're just kind of like, you're going through the motions and wondering where you're gonna go eat afterwards. I get it. How many know it's still powerful? It's telling you, I'm gonna choose stewardship. I'm gonna choose simplicity. I'm gonna choose gratitude. I'm gonna choose to be a giver. That's why we come to the table every week because how many know going to the table once every two to three months is not enough to reorder our hearts back to the gospel. The power of repetition, the power of practicing things that you need. We practice thankfulness, right? Thankful heart, you have to practice it it doesn't always just come natural. You have to practice contentment. You know what practicing contentment means? I don't need that thing I think I need in order to find life, right? It's like you're scrolling through and like shopping for stuff and you're like, you got 42 things in your Amazon cart right now, right? And you're just like, I, I, maybe I want that, but do I really need it? And sometimes in your life, you even stop spinning and you're like, I don't need any of those things. Everything I really need, I already have. Like you're practicing the power of contentment, you're practicing simplicity. We always think more is better. Then if you have 82 apps, it's gonna save you time on your phone. Life just gets a lot easier. No, it doesn't. You've got notifications out the wazoo. You're like, please just stop notifying me and trying to make my life better. <laughs> you don't need all of the things. Simplicity actually breeds joy, right? Contentment brings joy. You have to practice these things. And what happens is it actually breaks the grip of money. Every time you give, you are breaking that grip on your life. You are recentering your heart and you say, life is not about what I receive. And as you begin to actually live in this and find freedom in this, it becomes addictive, giving does. You find to yourself, you're like, you know what? It's, it's a whole lot more fun to be a giver than a receiver. Right? You live in this mindset of like, when I walk out of here, like, who can I bless? Where can I go? Like the lady who's serving me at the restaurant or the person in need or, or someone in my life, like I can drop off a meal from a friend who's just had a tough week. Do you know the power of a Route 44 uh, diet Dr. Pepper to a friend who's had a bad day? Come on now. It's the power of the gospel right there. That's my wife. Like that's what you could give her. That's her love language. I want to be a giver. I'm gonna look for opportunities that are all around me if I just lived with my eyes open. I've learned this, that everyone aspires to generosity, but talking about generosity and doing generosity are, are different, aren't they? In fact, they recently did a, a survey and like 80 to 90% of people checked the box that they're a generous person. Because I think all of us aspire deep down inside to be a generous person. And then when they went to that same group of people, less than 10% of that group ever actually made any significant sacrifice on behalf of others. But how many know we always consider ourselves to be generous? And sometimes we consider our, ourselves generous with what we hope that we have one day, not what we have in the moment, don't we? Uh, Bubba and Leroy, best friends, 
fishing partners. Bubba and Leroy are out on a boat one day. Bubba looks over at Leroy. He says, uh, Leroy, man, if, if you had a million dollars, would you give me half? Leroy is like, absolutely, Bubba. You're my best friend. Anything that I have is yours. A couple minutes go by. Bubba looks at Leroy again. He says, Bubba, or he says, Leroy, if you had $10,000, would you give me five? Bubba, you know that I would, right? Again, whatever I've got is yours. A few minutes go by, Bubba looks over at Leroy again. He says, hey, if you have two ham sandwiches, would you give me one? Leroy says, Bubba, you know I have two ham sandwiches in that cooler right there. Get your own food, right? (laughs) In that life though, come on now, we project generosity on what we one day will have. But what do you have in your hand at the moment? It's a whole lot easier to get, a whole lot harder to give, isn't it? It is for me. I don't know if it is for you. When I get here, when I arrive, when, I, when, my, when my stuff gets aligned, when all my ducks are in a row, when my investments come through, like when, when I get this car or that home or whatever it may be, then generosity is something that always just right outside of our fingertips, right around the corner. One day, let's define a few terms this morning. Generosity I define as this, when you are fully aware of what you have been freely given, so you choose to freely give. Generosity is a response. Why can most people not sustain a generous life? Because it does not come from the gospel inside of them. It comes from a desire to want to be generous. A desire to want to be generous falls apart. When generosity flows from the work of the gospel in your life, it will overflow, right? Like you realize your sin and what you deserve death. You realize the life that Christ has given you. You're overflowing with this thankfulness and gratitude. And what do you do with your life? Here, here's my stuff. Like it's, it's not really mine anyway. One of our core values here at City Church is extravagant generosity. Let me define this one for you. When you become so overcome by the grace and undeserved love of the Father that you lavishly reorient your life around giving and kingdom impact. I love that. When you become so overwhelmed, the gospel so captures your heart, now it's not like, can I give something? Now you begin to reorient your life more about the kingdom than your own wants. Now it's not like, can I give something, but what can I live off of so I can give the rest away? Like it becomes a complete flip of the culture around you because now the gospel, the story of God has captured you. It defines who you are. You're no longer running the rat race or pursuing the American dream. You're living for something greater and something better. Stewardship is this, an understanding that God is the owner, we are the managers, and we are accountable to the owner. Look at the person sitting next to you right now and look at them and say, you own nothing. Come on now, let that set you free right now. You own nothing. Like people think they own stuff. No, I got a lot of property. I got a lot. No, you own nothing. Everything you have is temporary and everything that you have is given from God. You are simply a steward of what is in your hand right now and thinking that we will give an account for these things. In the New Testament, there's an Aramaic word that when translated into the Greek uh, is known as mammon. You may have heard this. It's used four times in the New Testament, all four times by Jesus. Once in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, three times he uses it in the passage we're about to read right now. The love of mammon is what drives the world around us. It's what drives the world. We need to keep up with other people. We need this for me, for my family, to be happy. If I just had fill in the blank, then everything would be better. Mammon promises us life. It promises us security. It promises that once you get it, everything will be just like you need it. 
but it fails to deliver. Let me say this, mammon is actually a neutral term in scripture. It's the love of mammon that Jesus condemns. It's the love of it. Mammon is literally, in in English, we just translate it as wealth, as property, as riches. It's the stuff of life. Is mammon a tool that serves our God-given purpose or are we a slave to it like the world around us? And then Jesus tells a really weird story that we get to look at this morning in Luke chapter 16. I like weird stories. I like stories that don't go according to plan, that don't fit the script. Let's read it. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each, of his, each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. Let's stop for a minute. The setting for this parable is a very common situation in Galilee in the, in the ministry area of Jesus. It's an absentee landlord master who has left his estate to an estate manager. In this particular case, the, the master, the landlord comes back, he, he wants to report the manager has mishandled or mismanaged the estate and he's going to be held accountable. If you don't do your job well, guess what? You lose your job because you didn't manage what was given to you. But the manager decides to make this shrewd decision and move by reaching out to his master's debtor and telling them that he's going to reduce their debt in order to put himself in their good graces. I want you to hear this part right here. This is key. This manager is going to use his his little bit of time and his little bit of opportunity for his future benefit. Verse eight, This this is the twist right here. Jesus says, the master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. That's weird. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Money. The Pharisee who loved mammon heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourself in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Jesus uses this and says, we can learn something from the dishonest manager. Jesus is not telling us to be dishonest. (laughs) Just need to say that out loud. He's not telling you to mismanage what's been given to you. He's saying this, here's what we can learn. He used the little bit of time and his little bit of opportunity for his future. You've been given a little bit of time. You've been given a little bit of opportunity You have something in your hands right now. How are you using it? How are you using it? 
Jesus reveals several truths in this passage. You don't really even need me to break this down for you this morning, but I'm going to do it anyway. Number one is this. Jesus encourages believers to act as prudently with divine things as unbelievers do with earthly things. He said, look around. Earthly people always trying to get a step ahead, make a buck. It's always about, it's the rat race. I need a little bit more than I have right now. He said, you're gonna do the same thing, but not with mammon, with things of the kingdom. Imagine that, you are gonna do that in in kingdom matters. You are literally gonna be always looking for an opportunity to give, to serve, to love. Guess what you're gonna have to do in order to do that? You're gonna have to be wise with your finances and you're gonna have to have enough margin to be generous in your life. Most people wanna be generous, they have no margin. They can if they wanted to, right? You're always gonna be looking because guess what? There are opportunities everywhere if you're living with your eyes open. Number two, Jesus teaches us this. He says, Jesus directs believers to conduct their lives in light of the coming of Christ and the future judgment. This whole parable that Jesus teaches is about that there is going to come a time where we are gonna give an account. And that should not scare us again, because if we are in Christ, we don't have to worry about that, but we will give an account of our lives. And so all of this is predicated on the end in mind. Like if none of this is gonna happen, if Jesus is not gonna return, if there's gonna be no judgment, live it up, right? Have a good time in the moment because that's all you have to live for. Jesus says there's gonna be a moment. Are you living with the end in mind? Do you realize that everything that you own will one day probably go into some kind of an estate sale? Anybody realize that? Uh, Lindsay and I like walking through garage sales, estate sales for a while when we were, we were trying to find like, like original mid-century modern furniture, not like repo stuff. And so we would go into these places because around Midtown, you'll find some of this furniture that's really old, but it's like perfect condition. And so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not lying to you. It's never not weirded me out to go into an estate sale to think this person just died and I'm walking through their bedroom. <laughs> like their clothes, their shoes. Like we had some family over and, and they were going through an estate sale and they were like, oh, this lady is so petite, but man, she has big feet. Like, you know, I'm like, that's weird to me. <laughs> Like her bras and stuff over here, like that's just, that's just weird, you know? But every time that I walk through that, I remind myself everything that I'm accumulating, my family's gonna take a few items that they, they think are valuable and then a bunch of strangers are gonna come in and haggle over the price. Yeah. Everything you own is either gonna go to a garage sale, a estate sale, or you're gonna give it away to somebody, right? What are you living for? Are we living with this end in mind? Are we just trying to accumulate the next thing? It is so easy to get stuck in those cycles. That's why you need the rhythms and practices that break you out of it to say, no, that is not what I live for. That is not what brings life, right? That's why we say this every week on the screen. This is why we practice generosity. That's why we give consistently. That's why we want you to build that into your life, not just because the church needs it, but because of what you need in your life. Number three, you're responsible for stewarding what you've been given. You're responsible for stewarding. You are the manager. You own nothing. Let that set you free. Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with very much. Oh, you're asking for more, but you won't do anything with what's in your hand. You remember the story of the parable of the talents. Jesus gives these talents, some go and do something with it and the other person just buries it. You, you want more, but what are you doing with what you have? Do you take care of what you have? It may be a 2004 Toyota Corolla, do you take care of it? Or do you just drive that thing with a scowl on your face looking at every other car that drives by like that's what I need? Come on now, sometimes a Toyota Corolla will bring joy to your life, sometimes it won't, I don't know. 
Guess what? You don't spend what you don't have. You look around at the world, you're like, how does everybody else afford all that? They don't. You know that commercial? I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. You remember that back in the day? That's exactly how the world lives. Not you. Not a good steward. Not a good manager. And, and I know I'm, you're like, man, this is going beyond like the biblical stuff. No, this is every day. This is biblical principles. If you cannot manage your finances, go find someone who can bring them into your life and allow them to help you. This is what we do in premarital counseling. We sit down and we're like, hey, let's talk about all the debt. Let's get you on a plan. We're going to, we're going to, what's your, what's your financial goals? We're going to do a budget. Does this budget actually work? No, you're going to spend $75 a month in food. No, you're not. That doesn't work, right? That's, that's, that's two dinners for you, whatever it may be. Let's figure out what's works. Let's get together. Let's be wise with our finances. Let's set goals. People are not generous by accident, right? They're not generous by accident. Generosity is because you've been a good manager. If your car payment, if you can make a car payment of $500 a month, guess what? You don't buy a car that's $525 a month. In fact, I wouldn't even say you buy one that's $490 a month. You're going to be wise. You're going to create margin in your life that allows to be generous, to be a good steward of what you have. Very much biblical principles. Number four, you can't claim the lordship of Jesus and yet choose to make mammon your God. Jesus says you can't. You can't have two gods. You can't have two lords. You, you can't say, oh, I'm the Lord in this area, but Lord over this area. What Jesus is saying is, I, I can follow your resources. I can follow your expenses. I can follow where you put your time. I can follow all of these things to your Lord. If, if, I, if I walk down that trail long enough, I'm going to figure out, where do you spend all your time? I mean, is it a job for you or are you, like, are you so passionate about getting ahead and making the next buck where it becomes everything? I mean, do you sit on your phone all day looking at your, the stocks that are going up and down and you're like just trying to figure out how you can do it? It's one thing to like have stocks. It's another thing when it, it becomes your life. I met a lot of those people during like COVID. They didn't know what to do. So they just got around opening an account and it's like it, it took over their life, right? That's a real thing. What is it in your life that the enemy would have a foothold in? You can't love both. Jesus demands our exclusive loyalty out of his love and goodness for us. He'll always seek to break the bondages in our life. Matthew chapter 19, verse 23. Uh, I'm not going to recap the whole story just because uh, of time this morning, but you remember this passionate, rich young ruler who runs up to Jesus so ready for life. Man, what do I need to do? Tell me what to do. I'm ready. And man, how many know Jesus always asks for the one thing in your heart that you're going to be the most reluctant to give up? Why? Because that's Lord. Jesus wants exclusive devotion, not because he's weird, but because he wants life from you. He wants you to walk in freedom. And so he looks at the rich young ruler. He says, go sell everything you've got. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. Anything but that, Jesus. I should have started with that. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But please don't touch my finances. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of people that fall into that category. A lot. Jesus turns around to the disciples in Matthew 19, 23, and he says this, truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why is it so hard? Why does Jesus talk about it 25% of his time? Because when you love mammon and when you learn to trust in mammon, 
Guess what? It often takes a significant event in your life to break you free from that. It's, it becomes such a foothold and a stronghold that takes over in your life. It begins to wrap itself in subtle ways around your heart and begins to slowly squeeze the life out of you. And you look around and everybody else is just doing the same thing. And so you think to yourself, it's really not that bad. Right? And Jesus brings it up again and again and again. Here's my questions for us as we wrap this up this morning. Does mammon have a foothold or a stronghold in my life? A foothold is this, if I've talked about this a lot over the years, but it's just an opportunity where the enemy can have access to your life or your heart. Part of living and walking in freedom as a follower of Jesus is being self-aware to know where you're susceptible. Where do you struggle financially? Can, can I, I'm, I'm just gonna be honest with you. I'm gonna share with you my struggles. I don't always share my own struggles. My greatest struggle financially is, is many times I will learn to love margin. I'm very conservative. And I will want to build in so much margin where I will eliminate all and any risk. Anybody else wired that way? All three of you guys, all right? My dad's on the front row. He's, he's wired that way. I learned that from him. That's my struggle, right? If, if, if I have margin, there's no risk. Well, guess what? Margin is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It can become a God, can it? There are times where, where God's like, you're gonna, you're gonna step off the ledge. You're gonna trust me with all of that. Am I willing to give it? Right now at City Church, our margin is small. I'm just being honest with you. That's uncomfortable, isn't it? Nobody likes small margin. We like abundance, overflow. We want more than enough to come in. Am I praying and believing God for that and hoping it does? Absolutely. But in the meantime, I have to live by faith, right? We as a community right now are living by faith, trusting that God will provide what we need by the time that we move in. That is uncomfortable. It creates space to trust God at another level. I don't know where you're susceptible. I don't know what your struggle may be. You're like, man, I just, I, I put, it's just stuff, it's things. It's always needing that next thing. It's not valuing what I have. It's, it's discontentment. I just, it just breeds inside of me. What will you actively do? Number two question is this, what are the practices I need to implement so that man will not become my God? The practices of generosity, the practices of stewardship, of literally of like, you're gonna rip the vines out constantly. Guess what? You can't rip the vines out once a year. It's too late. They've already taken over. Like every week or two, I gotta rip the vines back out. It's all interwoven into the, to the fence. I'm gonna rip it back out. This is what the practices do in your life. Last but not least, what does a step of obedience look like today for you and for me? Would you stand to your feet with me this morning? Prepare your communion elements if you have them. You and I have been given a little bit of time and a little bit of opportunity. A little bit of time and a little bit of opportunity. What does obedience look like for you in a little bit of time and a little bit of opportunity? This is a message that things will not change because you're like, man, I liked that. That was good. This message requires obedience. It requires a step, an action step. Let me also say this this morning. 
This is a response to the gospel. So maybe this morning as we're about to take the body and the blood of Jesus, you take Jesus as Lord and Savior. You, re- you realize that you needed to be rescued. You were dead in your sin and Jesus rescued you. He pulled you from death into life. He gave you life now and forevermore. And guess what? Your response to that is, God, here is my life. How do you want to use it? Here is my stuff, open-handed. God, it's yours. My car is yours. How can I use my car to help other people come to know you, to further the kingdom of God? How can I use my job, my house, my stuff, my time? God, here is all of it, right? Holy Spirit, we ask this morning that you would speak to our hearts. Loosen the grip of mammon on our hearts, Father. God, we don't want to serve any God but you. We want to live a story of kingdom impact, God. We want to stand before you one day and say, man, we gave everything we had for the kingdom. Everything that was in our hands was leveraged and stewarded for the kingdom of God. God, we don't want to live with regrets. So captivate us this morning with your love and your goodness. Let your gospel so fill our hearts, Father, that it overflows into our money and our possessions and our time. God, we thank you for that. We need you. As right now we come to the table, Father, would you redirect our hearts towards the gospel? Would you recenter us in your ways, your love, your goodness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he passed it to his disciples. He said, this is my body. It's gonna be broken for you so that you can have life. Let's take the body of Christ together this morning. Jesus took the cup shed blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. I say this almost every week. One day you and I will stand before God and he will not see our sin. He will see the blood of Jesus. And we are so grateful for that. Let's take together. This morning, would you practice gratitude right where you're at? Thankfulness. Father, we thank you that we are undeserving yet you saved us and rescued us. God, let us live a life of gratitude and thankfulness and contentment today, Father. Give us the courage to walk out of these rooms and do the difficult things that lead to life. Steps of obedience you're calling us to today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask the prayer team to come forward during this time. When we dismiss in a few minutes, if there's anything that you need prayer of today, make sure you stop, pray with someone. They want to agree with you. If you're a first-time guest, I'd love to meet you in the welcome room just across the lobby, just 30 seconds of your time. We have a free gift for you just as a way of saying thanks for being our guest today. If you're filling out your commitment card, you can do that online. You can drop it in one of the giving boxes as you leave. Thank you for walking this journey with us. Man, this incredible journey that we're going to be taking on the next few months is going to be life-changing for you and so many in our city. Thank you. Let's end with our mission statement. Go live it out this week, wherever you are. Be the gospel. I go ahead because I don't feel shy